Um, now today we are uh, continuing our journey through the Gospel of John, and today we jump into John chapter 17. Uh, now Jesus has just finished what is sort of like his last will and testament. Okay, so John 13 through 16, Jesus really lays out this message for his disciples about both what they can expect from him and to what he is calling them to or empowering them to do. And now he turns his attention to prayer. Now, this prayer is the longest recorded prayer in the New Testament, and it's prayed on the eve of Jesus' death. So I think as we look at this, we can see a lot about Jesus' heart for his people. We see the heart of Jesus' message and his ministry right here contained in this chapter. Now, this chapter could be broken up into three sections. Today, I'll actually be covering those first two sections, which cover the first 19 verses where we see Jesus praying for himself and then praying for his disciples then. And then next week, we have the honor of hearing from Ben Stewart from Uncharted International. And he will be wrapping up uh, John chapter 17 by looking at Jesus' prayer for his future disciples. But let's start today by jumping into John chapter 17, verse 1, which says this. It says, after this, Jesus looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Jesus begins with that statement again, Father, the hour has come. And this idea of this coming hour has, has been talked about throughout our study of John. It's something Jesus referred to quite often. So we've talked about this before. This isn't some like 60 minute period of time that was going to come that started at two, it ended at three, but rather he was talking about a, a coming time that was a unique time in history where he would actually change the course of history by rescuing his people and going to the cross. We saw Jesus' ministry begin in John chapter 2 whenever he told his mother, my hour has not yet come. John chapter 7, John chapter 8, we see these people trying to grab Jesus, but they couldn't grab him, it says, because his hour had not yet come. But starting in John chapter 13, down through this passage, we see that his, this hour is upon him. And as the hour comes, Jesus turns his attention to prayer. Jesus prays, glorify your son. And glory is a key theme here in these first five verses. And I think if we're honest, there aren't many like church buzzwords that can beat out glory just for sounding like something that should be said in church, right? But sometimes we, we don't think a lot about what that actually means. Or maybe we just guess that we know what it means and we just go with it. Or you just nod your head with it. Maybe it doesn't even have a meaning. I don't know. But, but let's think about what glory actually refers to. You see, whenever we talk about God's glory, we're talking about God's goodness and also his worthiness to be worshiped. Whenever we talk about God's glory, it's the display of who God is. And whenever we see that, we, it calls for a response. And so to glorify God is to respond to his glory, to respond to his goodness, to respond to his worthiness as one to be worshiped. Here, Jesus is praying that his goodness would be put on display. But he has a reason, right? He says that your son, or that your son may glorify you. Jesus wasn't seeking his own honor. He was seeking to honor his father. I love this point. You see, the, the driving purpose in Jesus' life was to glorify his father by doing what his father had sent him here to do. 
And if this is true for Jesus, the Son of God, how much more true is it for you and I as people who are seeking to follow Jesus? Jesus invites us into this experience of life where we seek to worship him in all of life by doing what he put us here to do. And we'll talk more about this as we continue in this passage. But God's goodness is most clearly seen, and it talks about this throughout the Old Testament and also here in this passage, that his glory or his goodness is most clearly seen in his act of bringing salvation. So here Jesus transitions in verse 2 to say this. He says, For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Then Jesus goes on in verse 3 to define eternal life. What is this eternal life that Jesus is talking about? And I think whenever we look at his definition, we see Jesus' heart for his people, but also God's heart for all people in creating them in the beginning. Here's what it says in verse 3. He says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We can't miss this right here in this passage. You see, there is no life apart from the life giver. Everlasting life without the everlasting one would be no life at all. The life we are invited to enjoy is a life of knowing God and being known by God. This was God's heart in the beginning, in the garden, as we're told that, that he would walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Jesus came, or brought about this opportunity for us to experience this knowing God and being known by God like we were always created to experience. This isn't some mere like intellectual knowledge about some facts about God that we have to make sure we get right, but it's an actual intimate relationship that we're invited into. And that's why eternal life can actually begin now. It's not something that's just to come in the future. Now in verse four, Jesus kind of continues this idea that, that what he is doing and seeking to bring his father glory has been what he's been about his entire life. He says, I've brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Here Jesus makes clear that glorifying his father is what he was sent to do. Again, if we as Jesus' followers are seeking to live and love like him, the same thing is true for us. We actually glorify God by doing what he puts us here to do. He goes on in verse 5 and says, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Here we are reminded that Jesus was with God in the beginning. There was not a time when Jesus was not, right? And he had glory. He had this goodness that was put on display for eternity. But then whenever he came to earth, he came to earth as a baby with all the things that come with that. Dirty diapers, all that screaming, all that fun stuff came when Jesus came to earth as a baby. He actually took that glory, that goodness, and set that aside to come and live as a man. And now he's praying, Father, would you rest restore that glory I had all along? Now, this idea and how this works itself out as a way of life is talked about in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. So if you want to read more about maybe what this looks like, look at Philippians 2 and read through that. The idea of setting aside glory, though, for us is sort of like a foreign concept. I mean, so often we just try to grab whatever glory we can have, but Jesus, we're told, set it aside so that he could make a way for us to actually go and be with the Father. He goes on in verse 6 to say, I have revealed you to those you gave me out of this world. 
Whenever he says, I have revealed you, that's literally, I have revealed your name. If you have an NIV Bible, it's down at a footnote in the bottom. If you have another translation, it may just say that. I have revealed your name. D.A. Carson notes that, that God's name embodies his character. So to reveal God's name is to reveal his character, to make that known to the world. Here we learn that the best place to learn what God is like is to look at Jesus. If we want to know what God's heart is for us, we stare at Jesus. Whenever we look at Jesus, we see what God is like. As seen in verse 3, we only experience this life that we were created for. We only experience what God is like whenever we accept and trust in who Jesus is and who God is as we see in Jesus. So let's look at verse six through eight again. It says, I have revealed you or I've revealed your name to those you gave me out of this world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. Now, verses 6 and 8 work together to give us this picture that, that Jesus' disciples obeyed and accepted these words from God. Throughout the book of John, we're told again and again that Jesus only spoke what the Father had told him. So the words that the disciples accepted and obeyed were the revelation of who God is in Jesus. That phrase that they knew with certainty can be a little bit misleading. Really, it's trying to communicate this idea that they have come to know. It was a growing experience for the disciples. It wasn't like just one day when they started following Jesus, everything came together and they knew all these things for certain, but they grew in their understanding. And as they pressed into Jesus, they saw that Jesus really was as good and maybe even better than they thought in the beginning. So let's think about how this might work out with some of the things that Jesus revealed. Whenever Jesus said, I am the bread of life, the disciples grew in their understanding to the point where they could say, where else would we go to find life? You are the only one who has words that bring life. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world, the disciples grew in their understanding to say, we see that we believe and we want to go wherever you go. We don't trust any other lights. When Jesus said, I am the door and I am the gate, the disciples said, grew to the point where they understand we want in wherever that your gate leads, we, we want in there and we're going to do whatever it takes to go in there. They accepted and obeyed those words. When Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, these disciples were, got to the point where they responded and said, we will happily be your sheep. Wherever you go, shepherd, we are going with you. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, these disciples responded and said, we have no idea what that means, but we want in. We want this life that you're talking about. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, the disciples, as they continued to press into Jesus, saw that it was true. He was the way, the truth, and the life. And even if they didn't understand all that they meant, they knew that they wanted to experience that. So if you're here today and maybe you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus, what I want to uh, encourage you to do is continue to press into Jesus. 
continue to press in and see if your experience is like these disciples and even like my own personal experience has been that as I press into who Jesus is, I come to know, it's not like I just picked it all up one day, I come to know that Jesus not only is who he says he is, but he's better than I could even imagine. I think if you give Jesus a chance, you will have that same experience. Jesus, now as we move into verse nine, transitions to actually pray for his disciples. Let's think about what has just done. Jesus has just acknowledged that there is an hour coming. There is a cross before him. He is marching towards the greatest hour of suffering in his life. And yet, as that comes upon him and he is seeking to have his father glorified, he prays for these disciples. You see, I think this is important for us to recognize. Whenever Jesus left this earth, he didn't leave behind like a plan or, or, or leave behind like a program or a set of ideals, but he left behind a people. <laughs> he left behind a group of people known as the church and he left them behind as an empowered people and as a people who he prayed for. So let's see his prayer here starting in verse nine. It says, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me for they are yours. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. Here we see that what belongs to the father belongs to the son. What belongs to the son belongs to the father. We see the unity of Jesus and his father in heaven. The idea of glory coming to Jesus through the disciples is really set in contrast to the way that the world responded to Jesus. See, whenever the world saw Jesus, they chose to reject him. And yet, whenever the disciples saw Jesus, they chose to glorify him. So glory has come to him by his disciples. And each and every one of us who see Jesus have that same decision to make. Will we choose to reject or will we choose to glorify? Verse 11 says, I will remain in the world no longer. Now remember, that is good news. How do we know that? Well, look back to John 16, verse 7, where Jesus said, But very true, truly I tell you, it is for your good I am going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So this is good news whenever Jesus says in verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer because it means that God is sending his spirit to come and live in his people. The people he's leaving behind, he doesn't leave alone, but he gives them their, his spirit to live as he called them to. So verse 11, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture uh, would be fulfilled. The first thing Jesus asks of his Holy Father, he says, is that his Holy Father would protect them by his name. Again, it's, uh, the NIV adds in there, by the power of your name, but really it just says by your name. And like we saw earlier, by your name means by all that you are, by your character, by your power, by your name, protect these disciples, he said. But why is it that Jesus asks his Father to protect them? Do you catch that at the end of verse 11? He says, so that they may be one as we are one. 
Don't miss this. Jesus prays for protection for his disciples for the sake of unity, for the sake of his people being one as he and his father are one. That was why he prayed for protection. We can think about what these disciples were going to face in the future and think, I can think of all kinds of reasons to pray for protection. They're going to face persecution. They're going to face trials. They're going to face all of these things. But what does Jesus pray for protection for? For unity. For them to be one as he and his father are one. Jesus is going to his father And yet he prays that his disciples would remain united. Unity was paramount for Jesus. And this unity is around the truth of who God is and his character. We'll talk more about this unity and oneness next week with Ben because it pops up three more times in the last seven verses in this chapter. But here, Jesus makes clear that his purpose in praying for protection for these disciples is unity. Crossroads, do we think about that kind of unity as being that important for us and for the churches around the Evansville area? Do we think about our other churches and think, oh, we, we, we are one? Not only that, but Jesus prayed that, he would, or that God would protect us by the power of his name so that we would remain united. Now, this passage also speaks in passing just about Judas, all right? And it's not very bright. It says, it talks about Judas as the one doomed to destruction. I just want to make a quick point here. This points back to Psalm 41, verse 9, and it highlights a truth. And it's this. It's the truth that Jesus did not fail Judas, but what happened with Judas turning away and running away was something that was actually foreseen by Scripture. It's still a hard thing to wrestle through maybe what that means, but the important thing to recognize here is that it wasn't a sign of Jesus' failure. Now, verse 13, Jesus goes on to say, I am coming to you, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. When Jesus says, I say these things, he's not just referring to what we've read today, but all the way back to chapter 13. Okay, let's remember that from chapter 13 up to this point, this is all happening in the same night. Okay, this is the same day. And so Jesus says, I am saying these things so they may have my full measure of joy within them. I think he's probably calling our attention to John chapter 15, verse 11, where he said, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I love this idea. You see, Jesus' people are to be marked by joy. People that are aligned with Jesus are to be marked by joy. It's supposed to be a key marker of who we are and how we live in this world. Jesus' prayer here wasn't just so that his disciples would, would muster up some semblance of faithfulness as they faced the road ahead, but it was also that they would experience and be people marked by joy. You struggle with joy? I mean, especially in the season we're in right now, it's kind of a hard thing to come by. If it's true for you, and it's kind of true for me at times right now as well, I want to encourage you just over this next week, take five minutes each day to write something about what God has done in your life to bring you joy. What has God done to bring you joy? Take five minutes each day the next week to write uh, just a list of things down. If it takes five minutes, you get one thing down. Awesome. Stick with that and think about what God has done to bring you joy. And I want to encourage you to, to commit to sharing that with one person each day. 
It could be a coworker, it could be a spouse, it could be a child, it could be a parent, it could be anyone, but just find someone to share what God has done to bring joy in your life. Let's start taking steps towards being a people marked by joy. Jesus goes on in verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. Again, when Jesus says your word, he's referring to the the truth of who he is and how that reveals who God is. We've seen that a couple times here. And that revelation requires a response. Whenever we see who God is, it requires us to respond. Like we've talked about, we can choose to respond in worship like the disciples or we can choose to reject him. But we still have to make that choice. We also see here that the followers of Jesus are no longer part of this world in a sense. And I think that's kind of unpacked here in the coming verses. So let's jump into verse 15 here. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. Here Jesus is again praying for his disciples to be protected now, he says, from the evil one. This is sort of like an echo of the prayer in Matthew chapter 6, whenever Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, the well-known Lord's Prayer, whenever he says, lead, or pray this, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's a similar kind of prayer. But what I want us to do for a second is think about this, the protection from the evil one in light of what we saw in verse 11. What was his purpose for protection in verse 11? That they may be one as we are one. I mean, what would the evil one want more than to actually divide the people of God? So I think these two ideas are connected. As as Jesus prays that, that the evil one would not have his way, part of that is tied to the unity of the church. Now, Jesus also prays for his disciples to be sanctified. And I think this connects to that prayer for uh, protection from the evil one as well. I mean, if Satan can't divide the church, maybe he can make the church look just like the rest of the world. You see this idea of, of sanctify. To sanctify is to make holy or to set something apart or to set something apart as for being for a special use. Now, a way I think about this idea of holiness or being set apart for something might be a little bit strange for you, but I used to be a kid's pastor, and this is the example I came up with then, and I still stick with it because I can't come up with anything better. So the way I think about this is to think about brushes, okay? So you got a wire brush, you got a toilet brush, you got a hairbrush, and you got a toothbrush, okay? So you got four different types of brushes. Each of those brushes is set apart for a specific use, right? Each one was designed to use or be used for one thing. And if you use those things interchangeably, they stop being what they were created to be. They lose their distinctiveness. They lose what they were set apart to do. So think about it. Like if I take my toothbrush and I use it for what I use my toilet brush for, that toothbrush is no longer a toothbrush. It will never again be used as a toothbrush. Why? Because it is no longer set apart for that special use. Well, the same thing is true for the church. We've been set apart for a specific purpose. And whenever we allow ourselves to be used for things we weren't created to be used for, we lose our distinction. We cease to be what we were created to be in this world. 
We're set apart for a specific purpose. And the means of us being set apart was the truth. And what's the truth? It's God's word. That is what the truth is. This is important for us to see. One of the greatest ways for us to grow and being set apart for what God created us for is to look at his word. It's to look at Jesus. It's why whenever we gather together, we seek to lift Jesus high because we believe that as we look to Jesus, it actually shapes how we think about who we are and how we live in this world. You see, a holy people, a people set apart, are a people who are wholly committed to what God has called us to. Now, unfortunately, I think that that the church has often responded to this call to be holy or to be set apart in a couple of ways that honestly aren't very helpful. Here are two, I think, faulty responses to the world in light of this as we try to run after the mission God has given us while also being distinct. One is isolation. See, this is when we keep yourself separate from falling by withdrawing from the world. Isolation or withdrawing is not what God called his people to do. But a second one is equally as dangerous. It's inoculation. It's whenever you engage in God's mission while blurring the lines between you and the world to the point that you are confused with the world. But what are we sanctified for? Well, we're sanctified actually to be sent into the world. That's why we're set apart. That's why neither one of those things actually makes sense. Now, sometimes I think the response to this passage, again, has led the church on a mission of avoidance rather than a mission of engagement. We've avoided the world and we haven't actually engaged in the mission we've been called to. In fact, sometimes as a church, we even lament being here where we are in the world right now. But if we look at this passage, we see we are not here by accident. Jesus says, God, as you sent me into the world, so I am sending these disciples into the world as well. David Mathis notes that the the common phrase of, of in the world, but not of it may better serve us by changing it just a little bit. Think about it as this. We are not of this world, but we are sent into this world. We are sent into the world to be difference makers. So whenever we embrace the truth, it's true that we're no longer of the world. We should no longer be confused with the world. But at the same time, we should not be withdrawn from the world either. Rather, we are sent into the world just as Jesus was sent into the world. So what might a faithful response look like? I think it looks like intentional engagement. I think it looks like us daily focusing upon the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word, while also being equally focused on the mission that God has called us to, to engage the world. You see, it's vital for us to see that the call to live in love like Jesus is reflected here. And how did Jesus live in love? Well, it wasn't by withdrawing from the world. If so, we would be out of luck right now. And it also wasn't by becoming just like the world, but it was to engage with the world intentionally to actually see the world transformed by the way he lived and loved people. And we are invited into the same mission to remain in the world, maintaining witness by, to the truth by the help of the Holy Spirit as we run after the mission that God has called us to. And as we do this, it results in God being glorified like we saw in verse four. Your placement in this world is not an accident. It's God's purpose for his spirit-filled people to engage in mission day in and day out. 
So rather than lament the reality that we are here in this world in 2020 as the church, what would it look like for us to intentionally engage the world as a distinct people? I think there are several things we can do. I think we can be distinct in the way we engage in conversations with our coworkers. I mean, how can you intentionally share what God is doing in your life? How can you maybe even share how he is bringing your joy, not just with coworkers, but with classmates or other people? How can you be distinct in the way you intentionally engage in conversation with people? Now, this doesn't mean that you like have to be the person around the water cooler who whenever like talking about fantasy football, you're like, yeah, you can really score a touchdown with Jesus. That's not what we're talking about here. Okay, but we are talking about being intentional, maybe to even be vulnerable and share how God is sharing or how God is transforming you on the inside. I think we can be distinct in the way we use our times, maybe even our meal times. I mean, what would it look like for you as a family to use one meal time a week to say we're gonna, going to intentionally engage with neighbors and invite them into our home and just share a meal with them and try to get to know them and their story? Or what would that look like if you did the same thing at school or at work, if you chose one lunch day or one lunchtime each week to intentionally engage with someone to say, hey, can we read the word together? Or at lunch to engage with someone maybe you don't normally engage with at school and have the opportunity to share with people what God is doing in your life. I think we can be distinct in the way we use our time whenever we're at soccer practice or dance rehearsals or football practice, whatever it may be. What if instead of using that time to catch up on people's lives on Facebook, we chose to use that time to actually engage with the real people around us to find out what's going on in their life, to find out maybe how we can be praying for them. I mean, I think we, again, can be distinct in how we use our time. I know that like the coronavirus has kind of made some of these things I've mentioned maybe hard for you and your family. So maybe for you, it's how you use your free time. When you're not at work or you're not commuting, what if you use some of your extra time rather than trying to catch up on football or news or a show that you've been watching? What if you use that time to write encouraging notes to neighbors? What if you use that time to to catch up with people that maybe you're not normally engaged with to encourage them and, and see what God is doing in their lives? I think we can be distinct in the way that we use our time by maybe even choosing to do prayer walks around our neighborhood to show that we believe that God can transform what's going on in our world. We can be distinct in how we engage with those who disagree with us rather than us choosing to always have to have the right word or convince them that we are right. We can respond with gracious words, and that is something that would be revolutionary in our day and age. Jesus wraps up his prayer in verse 19 for this section for this week by saying this. He says, for them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. The sanctifying of Jesus' followers. So the setting apart of Jesus' followers is only possible because Jesus himself set himself apart for his mission. This morning, I was reading through my notes out loud to make sure that uh, it actually made some sort of sense, at least to me. And as I was reading through them, my son ran up whenever I was about halfway through and interrupted me and said, hey, hey, daddy, you forgot something. And so my son's three years old and he can't read my notes. I'm like, oh yeah, what did I forget? He said, you forgot to say that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. I was like, huh, that's true, but that's sort of what this last verse is about. (laughs) 
You see, the reality is, is that if we try to live intentionally engaged with the world, but we forget that the reason we can do that is because Jesus set himself apart for his mission. He sanctified himself and said, I'm staying focused on the purpose I was put here for. If we try to accomplish the purpose we've been put here for, apart from remembering what Jesus has done for us, we're going to fail every time. So from Abram William Bondurant, I want you to hear that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And that means that you are set free to run after this mission in all of life. Because Jesus set himself apart for you, you can freely run after this mission he's laid before us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for being God and for being good. I thank you that you sent Jesus to rescue us. God, I thank you that you actually allow us to have your word recorded here 2,000 years later where we can see the words of Jesus. And God, I thank you that even now we can reflect on the fact that our Savior prayed for us in this room 2,000 years ago. God, I pray that that would drive us to run after what you call us to. God, that we would seek to be a people that are distinct Not for the sake of being distinct, but for the sake of showing the world what you're like. Would we be people who press into the opportunity we have to experience eternal life, to know you and to be known by you and to share that wherever we go. Thank you for your love and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.